0: Howdy peeps, and welcome once again to episode three of the Ingressive Voices Podcast with your host Wayne Ashley. It's certainly been a fun and interesting journey so far in the world of podcasting, and I continue to learn in the trial by fire method. Once again, thank you for listening, and a very special thank you to a certain listener for submitting some feedback, my very first method of feedback uh, thus far. Though they wished not to be named directly, I will read the question that this listener submitted and answer it for you. Here's the question. So why did you decide to go to the podcast route and leave Texas Leftist? One thing I like about your blog is that you always provide good sources, but with the podcast, that all goes away. Well, anonymous listener, I appreciate the feedback very much, and for anyone else that's listening, you can always submit feedback to the podcast at ingressivevoices at gmail.com. Again, that's ingressivevoices at gmail.com, and some other social media will be coming up in the future as well. But I appreciate the feedback and I want to try and be as direct as possible with the answer. It's a multifaceted thing, but the main reason that I'm moving to the podcast realm is that it is a more interesting form of media for me. I love to listen to podcasts and I very much enjoy the possibilities with which this format provides. I love to speak. I love to use my voice, obviously, as a singer and a part-time radio volunteer. So it's something that I, I very much enjoy and, and want to continue and expand. But I also have to admit there, are, there is a slightly different reason as well that I would choose to reformat and move away from Texas Leftist. When the Texas Leftist, leftist blog began uh, back in 2010... I chose the name mostly because it rhymed, to be honest, and was easy to say so people would remember it. At the time, I never could have imagined that our current political discourse in this country would become so divisive and so tense that people wouldn't even want to listen to you if left or leftist were a part of your brand name this is not to say that i am ashamed of having the viewpoints which i which i firmly hold which are firmly to the left on many issues i'm not but as a goal of what this project which is to accomplish writing under the under the name of texas leftist has unfortunately become a hindrance that said, I haven't completely finished Texas Leftist uh, just yet, so stay tuned there as well. I, there are some things that I still want to accomplish with my blog, but we unfortunately live in a time where, you know, to immediately identify oneself as leftist or liberal or something like that puts a stigma on, on your ideas, and I, I, don't, I don't desire that for my projects. As for the notion of sourcing within a podcast... That is a major goal of mine, to have this information shared here as well-sourced or better, as well-sourced or better than the posts on Texas Leftist. Give me some time, but we will get there. Okay, enough of all of that. So let's get to some major news items. Here's your reminder that elections do indeed have consequences. After months of discussing everything but the official numbers, The Texas State House and Texas State Senate have finally revealed their starting positions to increase the funding for the state's beleaguered school system. Here's more on that from Edgar Walters of the Texas Tribune, quoting from uh, Edgar Walters' Texas Tribune article. A day after the Texas House unveiled a proposal to pump more than $7 billion in new state funds into public schools, The Texas Senate answered with a budget that would boost the state's share of public education spending by about $4.3 billion, compared with the previous two-year budget cycle. The Senate's budget offers up to $3.7 billion for teacher pay raises, enough for Texas school districts to pay every full-time teacher an additional $5,000 per year. It also includes a $2.3 billion Uh, allotment to pay for property tax relief if lawmakers agree to pass reforms that decrease the need for the unpopular Robin Hood system. This is also known as recapture in the in the school system, which requires property wealthy school districts to subsidize poorer ones. In Texas, state funding supplements local property taxes to pay for the majority of public school costs. After accounting for increased property tax collections, that $6 billion comes out to be about $4.3 a $4.3 billion boost towards public education in 2020 and 2021, compared with the 2018-2019 cycle. So again, that's a quote from Edgar Walters, writing for the Texas Tribune. But the House budget, by contrast, offered up a whopping $9 million in state revenue as an incentive for lawmakers to pass unspecified school finance reforms, which must in part, quote, be used to provide property tax relief, but could also boost funds for early childhood education, special education, and teacher pay. After accounting for property tax growth, The House budget would increase state funds for public education by about $7.1 billion compared with the 2018-2019 cycle. So some major, major developments here as the Texas House and the Texas Senate finally reveal their budgets for uh, the new biennium. School finance also accounts for the single widest gap from the proposed budgets between the Texas House and Senate. With the lower chamber's overall budget document planning for a $247 billion budget biennium, roughly $4 billion less than the upper chamber than the Senate. Though there's much work to be done before these numbers can be reconciled, the fact that all branches of state government have labeled school finance as their top priority is moving in the right direction and already establishes the 2019 legislative session as a far cry from 2011, which saw Texas Republican leadership eviscerate the school finance system with a $5.4 billion cut. After a decade of playing catch-up, all of Texas is hopeful that Republican leadership really means what they say this time. If one had to read the tea leaves here, the fact that the Senate is actually offering substantive measures like a pay raise for Texas teachers is a very good sign. But the question, as always under the leadership of Dan Patrick, is what will be the trade-off? Increasing teacher pay shouldn't demand cuts to school budgets in other areas or to slide money from the public system over to less accountable charter schools. While the budget news for schools statewide appears to be positive, Houstonians still have much to fear from this legislative session. As Laura Eisensee of Houston Public Media reports, and here's a quote from her recent article, the Houston Independent School District has been in turmoil since the threat of a state takeover emerged in 2017. With over 200,000 students, it's the largest school district in the state of Texas and the seventh largest in the country. The uncertainty in HISD has grown because of Hurricane Harvey, the abrupt departure of its superintendent, Richard Carranza, in 2018, and school board leadership that some describe as dysfunctional so the houston independent school district is under great threat right now um if if many many people have been paying attention and have noticed a lot of things going on in school board meetings including a school board meeting from last year where uh uh uh, school board members actually called the police on some parents and um, and and tried to uh, have parents removed from the meeting simply because they wanted to speak up and speak against board members actions and so it's really shameful what's going on on the Houston Independent School District's board right now but this is a major major situation. The possibility of HISD facing a takeover from the state could be very bad news for the democratic process in Houston. Though Governor Abbott has recently walked back inflammatory comments suggesting the threat of an immediate takeover, it is still a possibility which should concern all involved. So we really have to uh, be on the watch for this information. It is, it is important for the community to come together, to present solutions, to find solutions, to make sure that HISD can succeed. So, so that is really uh, incumbent upon Houston. I know there's a lot of great folks out there that are working. Uh, I went to an Indivisible Houston meeting recently where they, where they discussed uh, you know, the school system and are and organizing and getting a plan together um, to To make sure to let the legislature know that it is not okay to to take over control from uh, duly elected school board members and put it in place it in the hands of the state. So so I think that is very important for people to understand is that even though the board has a lot of issues, we we cannot simply cede control over to. Uh, a state manager or company or however uh, th- it could possibly be set up. So so we really have to be careful about this. Um, so that's something to be watching out for. And if you want to get involved, I would highly recommend contacting Indivisible Houston and Pantsuit Republic, the Pantsuit Republic chapter in Houston, uh, to get involved with um, the pushback against that for HISD and to help protect our kids. And, of course, we move on to some national news. As Americans wonder why the longest-running government shutdown in American history has sustained for nearly a full month, the frustration is really starting to be felt. Families across the country, and especially those in cities, towns, and rural areas with a large number of federal employees or federal contractors, Those families have been scrambling to stay afloat and scavenging just to put food on their tables. One area of the country that is really feeling the pinch right right now is Montana, where the state is already taking drastic measures to help people make it until their next payday. Here's more from an article written by Patrick Riley from The Missoulian. So I'm gonna quote a segment of this article. For Heidi Palmer, The federal government shutdown isn't just playing on the news. It's reaching her kitchen table. Palmer is one of about 117,000 Montanans who receive benefits through the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP. An average Montana household on SNAP receives $239 per month. Normally, families would get their February benefits at the beginning of next month, but because the U.S. Department of Agriculture can only incur obligations for SNAP within 30 days of its appropriation ending, the department had to pay its February funds to states by January 20th. The Montana Department of Public Health and Human Services aims to load February benefits onto the program's electronic pay cards by Thursday. It's not extra money, it's early money, said Jamie Palagi, administrator for the department's human and community services division, making clear that families will have to make this payout last until the end of February. So that's the situation in the state of Montana. And the only way that those families are gonna be able to make it last, well, how are they doing that? They're turning to food banks, which are already beginning to feel the strain in Montana as a, as a means of support. Um, and so, Such is the case in places like San Antonio, in Houston, across Texas, where, where food banks are trying to prepare for those that, are, that have been impacted by the government shutdown. So it's all across the country. The need to end the shutdown and get millions of Americans back to work, and of course, back to being paid, is growing. But if you're looking for that urgency to be reflected somewhere on Capitol Hill, don't cast your eyes toward the Republican-controlled United States Senate. As Democratic Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi and her bipartisan chamber Uh, continues to hold votes to open the government, passing bipartisan bills uh, that, that are sent to open the government. The Senate refuses to take any of these bills up. Or more specifically, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell continues to block all efforts to open government, claiming that he's not interested in a bill that the president won't sign. Such an interesting irony for Senator Mitch McConnell. But wait, isn't the United States Congress a co-equal branch of government? If McConnell truly cared to open the government as much as he cares about, say, restricting women's rights, which is a recent vote that that the Senate has had to take, or maybe easing sanctions on Russia, which is a vote that the Senate just took, and... The Senate, the Republican-controlled Senate, didn't have enough votes to prevent the Trump administration from easing sanctions on a Russian oligarch. It's, it's insane. But they took a vote on it anyway before opening the government. So if Senator McConnell really cared about opening the government, he would let the House bills go to the floor of the Senate and then approve them, send them to Trump and be prepared to override the president's veto if necessary. For some reason, many Democrats and many in the media continue to turn a blind eye to Mitch McConnell's tactics. They refuse to call him out specifically, and instead try to pivot the blame for the shutdown to Nancy Pelosi and her caucus. You know, the only portion of government that has actually been doing its job passing their first bill to reopen the government within hours of the new Congress being sworn in. And since that time, since January 3rd or whatever day it was, the United States House of Representatives has passed nine appropriations bills to open the government of varying degrees, each and every one of them having at least seven votes from House Republicans. But if one House of Congress is holding votes while the other sits on, sits on their hands, it's pretty easy to assess blame on the government shutdown issue. With each passing minute, it is Republicans whom own this shutdown like never before. The Republican-controlled leadership that owns this shutdown, and specifically Senator Mitch McConnell. No amount of Mitch McConnell going missing on Capitol Hill is going to change The responsibility he has. Thankfully, some Democrats are starting to figure this out. That this is indeed the hashtag Trump Connell shutdown. Leave it to the House freshmen, like Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, Texas's own Veronica Escobar, Rashida Tlaib, to actually break the Democratic orthodoxy and start calling people out. This week. AOC and her her team of freshman cohorts led the faction around Capitol Hill in search of Senator McConnell, with hashtag Where's Mitch quickly gaining some viral results. Thanks to their hard work, Republican leaders are now feeling the pressure more than ever to end the trickery. And now to introduce our first ever regularly occurring segment on Aggressive Voices. Hopefully, if you've listened thus far, uh, you understand that the point of aggressive voices is not just to cover news items, but it's also to be able to delve a little more deeply into what's out there, what's being said. Uh, There's so many, so many confusing and complicated issues that get glanced over in the current media atmosphere, and things that are, that are moving so fast, and we don't ever have the time to actually process what's going on, to actually ingress to take in what it is. So the segment is going to be much like what's going on with the podcast, but we're going to highlight one specific issue for each episode. And the segment is going to be called make room. So we're going to make room for that issue and for that episode uh, somewhere where you may not have perhaps providing perspective that you may not have considered before, or taking an issue and delving a little more deeply than the the common orthodoxy that's out there. So with that said, let's make some room. So you've probably heard that Democrats are off to the races in search of their nominee for the 2020 presidential election. What is expected to be a very crowded field is already growing rather quickly, even at the start of 2019. Among the first significant entrants to the space are Massachusetts policy analyst, social justice activist, and Senator Elizabeth Warren, former mayor, HUD secretary, and proud Texan, Julian Castro, Senator from New York, and former appointee from Hillary Clinton's old Senate seat, Kirsten Gillibrand, and many, many others that continue to be heavily talked about in the mainstream media. Some other folks I'm choosing not to name in this particular episode, but you can probably guess a few of them. But as for as many people as the media continues to focus on for this critically important race, it's still surprising some of the names that they have chosen to leave out of the conversation we all know how close a certain charismatic te- Texas democrat came to ousting ted cruz from the us senate in 2018 and since that race concluded this person has rapidly risen to the lead to lead the field among likely nominees for president and gotten to the top of national polls. To be perfectly clear, this is a great thing, and especially good to see that this particular individual uh, candidate has maintained their national profile after a bruising but very close loss in the Lone Star State. But some would argue that the charismatic Democrat which challenged Brian Kemp in the Georgia governor's race deserves some of this focus as well. Stacey Abrams ran an incredible race to make history in a red state and came even closer to her goal than a particular beloved Texan. Beloved Texan? I don't know, however you want to pronounce. Shouldn't the media be wondering if she is interested in entering the raucous presidential field as well? At least here at Aggressive Voices, a run for the presidency by Ms. Abrams would be welcome and very exciting news. Another prominent politician that seems to be flying under the radar, get this, this person is a United States Senator, former Army Lieutenant Colonel, Iraq War veteran, recipient of the Purple Heart for Bravery and Injury in Combat, veterans advocate, and former state-level director of the Department of Veterans Affairs. Basically, she is a trailblazer in virtually everything that she does, including being the first ever member of the United States Senate to both be pregnant while serving her term, and give birth while in office. An experience that millions of American women have to deal with in the workplace on a a daily basis, yearly basis. But it's the first time it's ever happened in the United States Senate in our over 200 year history of this country. So, I mean, come on, mainstream media. Why aren't we talking about the United States Senator Tammy Duckworth, as a potential presidential candidate. If you're looking for leadership, bravery, and chutzpah, you're not going to find more in existence than with Illinois' junior senator. She even bestowed upon President Trump a nickname that's better than any of the ones he could construct on his own. Cadet bone spurs. You know, after the excuse that Trump used to avoid any possibility of military service when he was a young man. Whether she has formally announced that she's running or whether she said never a thousand times, everyone should want to hear from Senator Tammy Duckworth about a potential run for the White House. She shouldn't be left out of the conversation. And that's the point with this informate, this first ever informate. You hear so much about the same couple of candidates in the Democratic field while others have to wait their turn and have to be locked out of the primary conversation. But there's so many good people out there and the mainstream media needs to do a better job of representing the voices. Why aren't we talking about Stacey Abrams? Why aren't we talking about Tammy Duckworth as potential uh, presidential candidates? Why is it the same couple of people that we hear about every single day. Democrats can do better. Progressive community can do better. The mainstream media can do better. In 2020, it is now more important than ever that the forces in opposition to the current beleaguered state of the Republican Party and to President Trump have to present uh, a a picture of this nation that really represents the future. So whatever that candidate looks like is not important, but they need to have big, bold ideas, and they need to be representative of of our country as it will be for future generations. In a scenario like that, we can't afford to leave anyone out. And that is today's Informate. So thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Ingressive Voices. I'm your host, Wayne Ashley. And by the way, a big shout out. uh, I want to mention the music for the podcast. The music that you hear at the beginning and the end of this, this podcast is titled CTL. It's music that was written by me and produced by me with the help of my wonderful friend, Emile Robinson. So a big shout out to Emile for uh, producing the work with me and I was a co-producer on it. Um, Amazing to have some of my own original music be a part of this podcast. So I hope that you're enjoying it. Uh, Be sure to take things in this week as we keep going faster and faster through the news cycle. Be sure to take a little time, take some things in and ingress. And that's it, peeps. Thanks so much for taking in this episode of Ingressive Voices. Until next time, I'm Wayne Ashley.